It's April 17th, 2006, and you're listening to the NACOcast, coming to you from Canada's National Arts Centre in Ottawa. This is Christopher Millard. This week, we're very happy to announce the first NACOcast contest. Listen to the NACOcast for a chance to win an iPod Nano, preloaded with recent NAC Orchestra CDs and past episodes of the NACOcast. During the month of May, we'll ask a question that can be answered by listening to an earlier NACOcast episode. Subscribe to the NACOcast to ensure you don't miss the question and your chance to win. You can find instructions on subscribing at nac.ca slash podcast. You can also find the NACOcast as a free subscription in the iTunes Music Store. Just search on NACOcast, N-A-C-O-C-A-S-T. So tune in to the NACOcast for a chance to win an iPod Nano preloaded with some wonderful music from Pinkus Zuckerman and Canada's National Arts Centre Orchestra. Don't forget to send us your questions and comments. If we read your feedback on the show, we'll send you a stylish NACOcast coffee mug. Send your email to nacocast at gmail.com. The National Arts Centre Orchestra returns to the stage of Southern Hall this week with a program of Grieg, Glasenoff, and Sibelius. The young Norwegian-born conductor Arild Remerite leads the orchestra in excerpts from the Per Gent Suite of Edvard Grieg and the Second Symphony of Sibelius. The concert also features the terrific young American violinist Hilary Hahn in a performance of the Concerto Opus 82 of Glazunov. One of our goals in making these weekly podcasts available is to help introduce you to some of the members of the NAC Orchestra. Today, I've asked one of the newest members, violinist Jessica Linnebach, to join us. We're going to talk about the Glazunov Violin Concerto, and perhaps some of the traditions of violin pedagogy. Jessica Linnebeck was accepted to the world-renowned Curtis Institute of Music in Philadelphia, which was my alma mater as well, at the age of 10, and she remains one of the youngest ever Bachelor of Music graduates in the 75-year history of that school. While there, Jessica's primary teachers were Aaron Rosand, Jamie Laredo, and Ida Kavafian. At 19, she received her Master of Music degree from the Manhattan School of Music in New York City, where she studied with Pinka Zuckerman and Patinka Kopek. Jessica Linnebeck, welcome to the NACOcast. Nice Thank to you have very you here. Much. So, Glazunov Violin Concerto, is it a great favorite of yours? 
it brings a lot of memories. It was the first concerto that I learned at Curtis with oh. Aaron Rosand. Huh? So it's uh, very special to me. And it opened up a new style of playing and really exposed me to a lot of new things. Had you played, uh, dabbled in Tchaikovsky or at that point? I had. I had Sibelius, Tchaikovsky, sort of those those concertos, but never Glazunov. Was I didn't know of it but when I went there. So for a young violinist, uh, where does Glazunov normally come in the study? At, uh, I presume as a young violinist you begin with Mozart. Right. Mozart and Bach. Mozart and Bach, and then Bruch, those types of... Mm-hmm. And Glazunov, I learned it because I had sort of already learned the other big concertos, and mm-hmm. I wanted to learn something that I hadn't learned before. So do you find the Glazunov concerto uh, as technically demanding as Tchaikovsky? Absolutely. I find that um, the Tchaikovsky violin concerto is much easier in terms of how it falls in the hands, that it sort of comes more naturally. Mm-hmm. And um, the Glazunov, is, it's more awkward. It doesn't look as challenging if you just look at the music, but mm. it's, it's not as, it's much more awkward. It's lushly romantic. Very, <laughs> very, from the first line, <laughs> from yeah. the first phrase. Well, why don't you show us that, the very opening of the first movement, the first theme. Give us, a, give us a, a, uh, an example of how this goes. Oh, I love it. It's so it's so lush. I you know, I I want to I want to swathe my body in molten chocolate. It's very luxurious. Okay, so that that's the first first subject, the first main theme. So the second main theme of the first movement takes a slightly different uh, tack. Show us a little bit uh, of of that, will you, Jess? So, Jessica, one of the features of the Glazunov Concerto, which is uh, which in which it shares similarities with the Sibelius Symphony, we're also doing this program, yes. is that there are not divisions of the movement. The first movement goes directly into the second movement. Can you show us that lovely transition into the opening theme of the Andante of the Glazunov Concerto? That's marvelous, Jessica. What does this mean to you, this beautiful theme? Well, this second movement is in a much darker key. It's in D-flat major, so all of a sudden it feels much more lush. Much, uh, It's very harmonious, uh, lots of different chords, and just seems much deeper. 
in mm-hmm. terms of in terms of music and phrasing. Glasunov was in- interesting in in his viewpoint of where he fit into the lineage of Russian composers because he didn't really see himself as a nationalist, no. but very much wanted to fit into the g- grander European traditions. Exactly. You know, to my ear, there's there's more Max Brook in this than there is Russian school. Do you oh, feel that too? Definitely. Yeah. yeah it's not. Um, doesn't sound virtuosic. It's much more sort of lyrical and sort of. It is more like Bruch, just singing, very singing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, now we move on. Uh, interestingly, in the Andante, there is a reprise of the second subject of the first movement, that second theme from the first movement. Show us that. Does the cadenza fit into this? Every great romantic concerto has a demanding cadenza. It does. <laughs> is this a fearsome one for you? This is a very fearsome one. It's sort of a lot of noodly notes and a lot of uh, chords and double stops. And you know, when if, if you're looking at the music as I am right now, it really looks like a mad painter has poured black <laughs> ink all over. It the, certainly does. Yeah, you know, it's it's an extraordinary the number of notes here. And from that, we move right into the third movement, which is in a different time signature. It is in... 6-8. It's 6-8, so it has a real lilt to it. And the orchestra comes diving in with this fantastically exuberant theme. It gives you a little bit of a rest to recover your senses. And Three then, bars, actually. <laughs> a few bars. And then there's, it's kind of structured. Well, well, show us the, first of all, show us this main theme when it's finally stated in the violin a few measures later. Sure. Okay, Jessica, talk a little bit about uh, the structure of this third movement and how the themes develop. Once the theme is stated, there are a few variations that he writes, and I'm going to show that to you now. Okay. Okay, so that's the first variation. Yes. And the second variation, what happens? Um, he develops it with harmonics. Okay, uh, uh, this is one of, one of those moments in music where you wish you had chalk to mo- mark the fingerboards, right? That's right. <laughs> That's an inside joke about the fact that there's always this f- famous story among string players, you know, if that if you... Was it Piatigorsky? I'm trying to I remember. think it was. It was Piatigorsky, the great cellist, or, or maybe it was Emmanuel Feuermann. I can't remember one of those any, anyway, talking about asking somebody in the orchestra for a piece of chalk where he could mark on the fingerboard exactly <laughs> where his finger was going to go when he was switching up to a very high position for some very high note. Uh, the third variation. The third variation combines um, the first variation and the second variation. Okay. Sort of a short phrase. Show us that. I want to talk a little bit, Jessica, about the lineage in violin playing. It's an amazingly small world because everybody seems to have studied with somebody who studied with somebody else. And there seems to be 
essentially two great traditions as far as, as me as an bas- ignorant bassoon player can figure out. <laughs> so what, what we always hear about in the tw- late 20th century is the, the whole Galamian school. Right. And so many students studied with Galamian at, the, at Juilliard and, of course, also his assistant, Dorothy DeLay. And Galamian was of the Leopold Auer school. And Leopold Auer, of course, was the great Russian violinist for whom the Glasnost Concerto was, was uh, written. And Auer was the teacher of Heifetz, Ephraim Zimbalist, even the Canadian Kathleen Parlow. And the founding music director of the orchestra, Mario Bernardi, used to play as accompanist for Kathleen Parlow. I remember Mario telling me once years ago when he was discussing being a young pianist and working with Kathleen Parlow, who was this amazing violinist who uh, spent most of her life in Toronto. And he used to call, call him Ducky. Oh, Ducky, let's <laughs> practice this phrase again. Anyway, Leopold Arrow had this had this amazing tradition. So uh, one of his students was the teacher of Galamian, and Galamian became the teacher, first at Curtis Institute, your yes. your alma mater, and then from most of his career at Juilliard. Pincus Zuckerman was, uh, was a student of, of uh, Galamian. So you are a... Gr- a great grand student and a great great grand student of Leopold Auer through through several of your teachers That's through right. yeah through let's let's talk about how that worked first of all Aaron Roseanne Aaron Roseanne yeah and um, and Jamie Laredo yeah and Pinkus Zuckerman Jessica I'm going to read you something which I just found so extraordinary because it talks about to, to me this addresses a very interesting issue what exactly is lineage in pedagogy what does it mean does it mean that that you play exactly like your teacher who played exactly like his or her teacher who played exactly like his or her teacher. And obviously that can't be the case. Cultures change, traditions change. But I'm going to read you something here, and I I want you to react to this. This was written by Leopold Auer. The purpose of the vibrato, the wavering effect of tone, secured by rapid oscillation of a finger on the string which it stops, is to lend more expressive quality to a musical phrase and even to a single note of a phrase. Like the portamento, the vibrato is primarily a means used to heighten effect, to embellish and beautify a singing passage or tone. Unfortunately, both singers and players of string instruments frequently abuse this effect, just as they do the portamento, and by doing so they have called into being a plague of the most inartistic nature, one to which 90 out of every 100 vocal and instrumental soloists fall victim. Some of the performers who habitually make use of the vibrato are under the impression that they are making their playing more effective, and some of them find the vibrato a very convenient device for hiding bad intonation or bad tone (laughs) production. But such an artifice is worse than useless. That student is wise to... Well, anyway, it goes on like this. It's it's a real diatribe. Well, this I find just so extraordinary. And this this would have come from a time when... When vibrato was used in a different way than it is now, right? Because I'm sure your teachers would take issue with. This. It's amazing how quickly traditions would have changed. Because I, Aaron Rosanna, I remember every lesson, every note he would want um, vibrato, and everything had to be very expressive. And to him, expressive was by using vibrato, being expressive. So, but it's know. a question of what kind of vibrato, isn't it? Also, I mean, he would talk about all different kinds of vibrato because all. All phrases and all different types of music don't use the same vibrato. Obviously, in Mozart, you won't use the same vibrato as you would in Brahms. Mm-hmm. But it's interesting to to hear how quickly traditions can change. Yeah, I mean, the variations in vibrato, of course, 
consists in how big we, we make it, how, how big... Right. The, how the, wide, how, how wide fast. It, exactly, yeah. Right. And that's, of course, in, in string playing, is tied up, too, with, with what you do with your with your bow arm. We have the, some of the same arguments in wind playing, you know, because mm-hmm. if I were to read something from the same period, say, from the turn of the previous century about wind playing, vibrato then was a, was was a was really just an effect. If we go and look back at, at Baroque period and we read about vibrato, it was more just a coloration, like an ornamentation. Vibrato started to become de rigueur in the French school of wind playing through the flute players in the late part of the 1800s. What would what would Pincus have to say about Leopold Auer's remarks? <laughs> He'd probably throw it out. Yeah. <laughs> I remember, well, you, I mean, you've heard him play. He, every note is beautiful and every note has mm-hmm. such an expressive quality. So I think, and I remember him even telling me, you know, every note has to has to have vibrato and color. It would be funny to, to see his reaction. Well, I think it would be great if we could actually go back and listen to what Leopold Auer was using for his own vibrato, right. you know, in, in 1890. Or, and, well, I know even from listening to old recordings that it didn't sound to me as if they weren't using that much vibrato. It always sounds very lush and very beautiful. So I'm I'm curious to see what excessive vibrato is yes. <laughs> to our yeah well it probably it meant the same thing to them too if you're just right. just using too much right. I find it interesting I go back to historical recordings of flute players for example and there are some going back even to like 1905 and 1910 right. and the quality of vibrato. It, this, and the style of vibrato is a little different than, than what became more normal 50 years later right. um, much as there is some variety in vibrato in, in the human voice too if you listen to the kind of even mid-century singing uh, if you listen to a the, the kind of uh, the kind of vibrato you have from Kathleen Ferrier in the mid-century to what you hear now there's stylistic changes right. how exactly do you produce the vibrato on the violin oh i think everybody's different and everybody learns learns differently but it's it is a combination of wrist and arm and I think depending on what type of vibrato you're trying to achieve, um, obviously for a faster vibrato you're going to use more of an arm vibrato because it will give you a more intense intense type of tone. And then more of a lush, slow vibrato would be used in the wrist. Mm-hmm. It's difficult to maintain vibrato while moving the left hand up and down the fingerboard. Right, it's it's all a question of coordination and sort of keeping keeping both things moving at the same time, you know, not to separate things and have everything moving together. Mm-hmm. What I, what I find so special about those artists who have really figured out this problem mm-hmm. is how vocal they sound. Right. Because after all, we're looking for an emulation of the human voice exactly. where vibrato is a natural product and is, is not as limited by, um, you know, by architectural shifts as like the... Well, exactly. The, the, yeah. And there's nothing worse than a beautiful phrase and having one dead note mm-hmm. because the person is shifting or, or it's not convenient on that finger and that it really does ruin a phrase. Are there places on the on the fingerboard of the, of the violin in terms of the up up and down positions mm-hmm. or on one of one or more of the four strings where vibrato seems to be harder to make i find that it's harder more on the higher strings so higher up on the fingerboard on the e string it's a bit more difficult it's more wiry up there for some reason and it sounds more shrill so is it a question of controlling the modulation, the size of the vibrato, or is it actually a question of having to press harder? Is it physically more difficult in the upper positions? Well, I think it's um, the way the hand is when you when you go up. It's the way it's contorted, sort of. It's not as natural as it is on the low G string. Mm-hmm. Um, so your hand is not in, in a good position to be able to vibrate as easily. 
Jessica, on this uh, program for the NAC Orchestra this week, our guest soloist is Hilary Hahn. Yes. Now, you must know her. I went to school with Hilary. Um, I've known her for probably since I was 12. She's having a, a big career. She's doing very well. She really is a great violinist. Yeah. What were her uh, traditions? She studied with the same teachers as you? She did. She studied with Laredo and I think Brodsky as well. Yasha, so, Yasha Brodsky. Yeah, Yasha mm-hmm. Brodsky. Mm-hmm. So um, it's sort of the same type of tradition. I've only had the opportunity of being on stage with her once uh, several years ago, and I thought she was an amazing performer. Yes. Does she have this kind of self-confidence when she was 12 years old that she seems to have now? Uh, I think she always did. She always seemed very sort of very sure of herself, very comfortable. She knows everything she does. Every note that she plays, she knows exactly where it goes and exactly uh-huh. how it's supposed to be played. Yeah. And um, so she, she's just very organized. Uh-huh. It makes me want to be very organized, you know, seeing that. Because I'm more of sort of just wing it type, right. type thing, you know, in the moment. And she's much more controlled. So uh-huh. it's to be admired. <laughs> yeah. Well, we're certainly looking forward to her playing. And to yes. the the guest conductor, Errol Remerate, who we haven't seen, who I think is in his mid-twenties. And yes. he's an extraordinary young Norwegian conductor who we're hearing great things about. And we're looking forward to that. Jessica, thank you very much for thank coming you. in and talking about this music. And uh, you and I will look forward to being on stage for this uh, terrific program Absolutely. this week. Thank you. Thank you. That was violinist Jessica Linnebeck. I hope that you'll be able to join the National Arts Centre Orchestra in our programs Wednesday and Thursday night this week. The guest conductor, Harold Remerite, will lead the orchestra in Grieg's Peregint Suite, the Glazunov Violin Concerto, and the great Second Symphony of Jean Sibelius. Thanks so much for listening to the NACOcast for this week.